Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And uh, today we're doing something slightly different because we're all under pandemic lockdown situation. We're doing it on our phones. I've got a microphone on my end. Jose's got a microphone on his end. We're going to try and combine it afterwards. So here we go. But we're doing this under lockdown conditions. How are you? How are you doing in the lockdown? I'm all right. I got a message from the NHS today saying stay home. So yeah. Did you get one? Uh, not from the NHS, but this is the day that this morning Boris Johnson put out like an actual order, I think, for the first time saying you need to stay home. I still need to go to work yes. because um, we're part of the supply chain, but everyone else is really properly staying in now, I think. And um, yes. th- the film I decided we should start off this new podcast regime with is Contagion. Very appropriate. I kind of, I was a bit iffy about it, actually, to be honest, because, you know, I thought, mm, like, seems so obvious. Yeah. yeah. But actually, having watched the film, it's, there are very good reasons to see it. Had you seen it before? No, I thought I had, but actually, because I really like um, the director, but it's uh, uh, um, Soderbergh, mm. but it was so off-putting, right? I thought it was going to be one of those all-star cast things, and it's going to be misery heaped upon misery, <laughs> you know, and I'd already seen the previous ones, because, uh, you know, there'd been a whole host of them. I remember one with Dustin Hoffman and so on, and, you know, they're all very worthy and they're all not very good, mm. you know, but I thought this was very, very good. Well, can I first say that, although it was my idea to start off with Contagion, because you've got a few films in mind as well and whatever, I said, let's start with Contagion. It was a horrible idea. The first half of the film is terrifying. And I had a terrible time. Ah, well, you see, I thought it was wonderful. It is. I mean, it's very effective. But I didn't realise it would be as terrifying as it is. You know? Yeah, well, it's, it's particularly resonant now. Well, yes. Because actually, we seem to be living through what the film is about. I mean, uncannily, yeah, in, in all kinds of ways from the the way that the film focuses on the touching of hands or the touching of surfaces, on the masks, on the social distancing, it is almost exactly what we're hearing, isn't it? It's interesting. Like In, in Broad Straits, I think it is, but there are some really interesting differences between what the film shows. The film's from 2011, and it builds on kind of SARS and uh, swine flu and bird flu and that kind of thing. Obviously, it's long before um, COVID-19. Um, there are some really interesting differences between some things that the film shows and, and the way in which we're experiencing this pandemic now I think we see an awful lot of essentially competence in the film there's an awful lot of confidence the government is generally competent there are certain degrees of individual um, kind of selfishness which are interesting like the thing about the Lawrence Fishburne character who for the most part is a really steady hand Um, Mm. he tells his wife before everyone else that there's a lockdown coming and you need to get out of town. His fiancé, his fiancé. Sorry, his fiancé. But, you know, he tells her ahead of time. Uh, you have the uh, Eli Gould character who is told, he's a scientist who's working on the trying to get a, a vaccine, and he's told, destroy all your samples, we can't risk this getting out, and he refuses to, and he ends up making a breakthrough that helps him develop a vaccine. That's the Elliot Gould, yeah? Yeah, did I say Elliot Gould? The Elliot Gould character. And it's not to say that people aren't being competent in this, in what's happening at the moment, but you know we don't have a situation in the film like like Trump and Boris Johnson sort of having these advisors around and basically denying things, lying, this kind of thing. You know, you have you have the Chinese in the film where the uh, virus originates, lying, um, but not the Americans. The Americans are pretty much stand up and they get it done. 
I know, and they've been the worst, actually, at the moment. So in that sense, that sense of security in the government and of competence and of, you know, a government doing the right thing, largely, uh, is certainly different than the times that we're living in. Mm. But all the other things are uncannily similar. Yeah, the, sh the shopping for food, the, f the food shortages, yeah. you know, the way that it spreads, how it spreads. I mean, it is kind of prescient, yeah. Uh, and, and really useful, I think, to see at the moment. Useful? Yes, because it really brings home, uh, you know, how just touching something and somebody else touching it can present a, dis a risk. And the camera sometimes, you know, somebody is on the bus and they just happen to touch, you know, the pole in the bus with their hand and the camera, you know, stays with it for a second, yeah, like underlining. Somebody else is going to touch that. Yeah, that's right, it right. lingers on it, which is very, very effective. And there's an interesting yeah. thing going on, which I think is what we're feeling today as well, which is that, like, when I go to the shop, you know, I go to Tesco and I see people there and, and the hours have changed and so it's kind of busier and everyone's going after the toilet paper and all this sort of thing. Mm. Um, there's a heart, I'm caught between in two minds because I have to trust everyone to do the right thing. We are genuinely all in this together. So we have to trust mm. everyone to social distance and that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, it also means not trusting anybody because anyone could have it. You know, so there's a weird thing going on. And yes. I think the film evokes that as well. Yes, it does. Um, you know, at the end, when they are in the airport waiting in line and that old man drops his ticket, you know, and, uh, you know, this very polite uh, Chinese man picks it up for him you know, and gives it to him and they shake hands, you're already going, no! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, that's even just kind of, you know, very nice people kind of unwittingly putting everyone in danger just through forgetting, right? Yeah. So so that sense of, of unease, the film does very well. And I think it's partly what we're living in at the moment as well. Like, you know, so I've been self-isolating, um, but and I'm going bananas. <laughs> And I've got so much to do, and I just can't concentrate on anything. So, you know, I am still working. We had meetings today, you know, through Zoom and things like that. But I just, you know, every time I try to just read a book or see a film all the way through without stopping, I've been finding it very difficult. And it's just that, that edginess, that not knowing, right? Yeah. You know, kind of. Um, I haven't hoarded any food or anything because, you know, I have a big cupboard. <laughs> and so I think, well, you know, I can last a long time. But actually, kind of then you're thinking, you know, should I go out? Should I get more food? Like, you know, because actually some things you are running out of, like milk and eggs and yeah, kind of. Yeah. But you need milk. And, yeah, it's it's that kind of edginess, unease that I think the film captures very well. Uh, and it's quite brutal with actually, you know, because uh, spoilers. Well, yeah, yeah it's, it's an old film, um, you know. Two of the biggest stars in the film die, right? Mm. And I think the deaths are handled very well, actually. Yeah, the, the, the Gwyneth Paltrow character and the Kate Winslet character, all in a very different way. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think the, I think the film actually, because I've now seen it twice. I saw it a few days ago, and then kind of when we agreed to do the podcast today, I thought I better see it again because... You know, oh, right, okay. I can't remember. <laughs> I could remember some things, but I wanted to be able to kind of, you know, speak on it more articulately, really. Um, and I'm, I, I was very surprised by what a good film it is, you know? Yeah. Like, 
kind of yes i think um you know the shots where the cameras plays like there's this very interesting thing that caught my eye when kate winslet arrives in the airport right you know to kind of help set up uh uh, uh partly the science partly how to deal with the problem and the camera films her through a row of people right mm. you know so actually you get the sense of urgency and yeah or the bit where she they take up that warehouse you know as a hospital right mm. and you know the way the camera makes you aware of you know the urgency of it the vastness of the space because the camera keeps moving through the space right and then the government officials come in to say who's going to pay for this right yeah so again that tension between kind of lives and commerce yeah, the film captures that very well as well, I think. I did find something simplistic about aspects of that, though. So, you know, that, that, that government official who you mentioned, she comes in and she says, is this coming out of your pocket or the taxpayers or whatever particular line is? You know, she's a very clear kind of villain. And it's and it's a very it's also a very American way of having that villain. You know, oh, it's the government, the, gov- the, the, the government bureaucracy person. You know, he just cares about the money. Meanwhile, everyone else is kind of trying to do the right thing and they're really working hard. There was something quite simplistic about that. There was also something very simplistic about the blogger character, um, played by Jude Law, who I think... I mean, he's, he's Australian, and I think he's kind of based on um, uh, the uh, WikiLeaks guy, what's his name? Julian Assange, to some degree. Mm. You know, like a crazy person on the blogs going, yeah, this, that, and the other. He talks about... Uh, I can't remember what the, the word is, but it's some... He's a conspiracy theorist. He's a conspiracy yeah. theorist, and he talks about a herbal thing, you know, basically a homeopathic cure that says, well, if you just take this, forsythia, if you just take this, then everything will be all right, and people are kind of believing him, but it it's a very... I remember the same thing in the newsroom, the Aaron Sorkin TV show, where the whole first season of that was about new media and the blogosphere, and basically it was about a real distrust of it, and it seemed like a real kind of boomer attitude, that like nothing these people do can possibly be right, because we have the weight of of uh, uh, sort of money and, and that kind of thing behind us, and they don't, and they just don't know what they're doing. And that's kind I of what he's very... got going on. No, well, I, I found it very resonant uh, and, and also kind of very true to life. I mean, I remember when the AIDS pandemic first started, you know, and there was like, uh, particularly for people, you know, the people didn't know what was going on. You know, there were all these quack theories, mm. you know, there were all these kind of experts uh, suggesting different things because no one knew the answer. I mean, people were on herbal remedies. Right. And people swore by herbal remedies before they died. <laughs> right? like, you know, so that sense of not getting information of of of, you know, kind of the cynicism with which people greeted everything that came from the government. Oh, I do understand that conspiracy theories. And, I do understand that. And um, it's not to say that, like, I think that this guy has the right idea or that or that he don't, wouldn't exist. And it's nothing like that at all. But I think it's very simplistically boiled down into this one character. For instance, you know, basically in today's world he would probably be in trump's cabinet you know like that's well, exactly um, that's kind of you know but but actually if you were to do it now i think the film is actually more subtle and complex than what we're seeing playing itself <laughs> out in the us i mean you know if you were to make a film now about the way it's playing out in the us you would have to make it half farce half tragedy i mean yeah. But yeah, I, but that would be kind of more true to life. I think what people what what no one would have seen coming or what didn't make it into Contagion is the idea that that 
so many people just refuse to believe this thing is happening. You know, so you have you have the the you know Generation Z people going out to do spring break. They're going out to parties. They don't believe any of what they're saying. Well, if I get coronavirus, then I get coronavirus. So what? And not not kind of caring or believing in the herd mentality and that kind of thing. You know, that's not something that shows up in the film at all. Like there is just kind of a general widespread uh, paranoia, as there should be. But no, but but none of this uh, kind of denial. You know, which I think would be more true to life. And well, you would see it today. You'd see it today. It is more true to life today. Um, that mm-hmm. people are kind of denying it, not believing it. I think that's whereas, like I say, in the film, it is it is just boiled down into this Julian Assange uh, sort of <laughs> type. You know, um, who kind of distrusts everyone and, and is then and also is out to make money for himself. You know, because he's he's flogging. He's made money off his uh, non-cure. Um, I do I do find that very simplistic. It's not to say that it's like not true to life, but it, it it's it it just compartmentalizes a whole segment section of kind of how people think and behave. I think in the panic. I liked it though. I liked it well because first of all Jude Law is very good. Yeah. Second of all, he's kind of um, visualized his performance right. So he's given himself a crooked tooth and a gap. Mm. Yeah. So that every time he smiles, there's something off. Yeah, there's something ugly. Well, that's about, a classic villain thing, isn't know. it? You know, the facial disfigurement. Well, no, but then then Soderbergh films him with that kind of spacesuit thing, <laughs> you know, amongst all the garbage or empty streets or, you know, I think it's very powerful, actually. I, I think, you know, so so I agree that maybe conceptually it might not be as complex as it could be, though, you know, you have to also think about all that the film does, mm. right? You know, because it's true that each character is representing something whilst also being a character. So I think maybe the Jude Law um, character is the one who is less of a character and more of a point in an argument. But nonetheless, you know, kind of the visuals really kind of convey something, you know, very powerful in relation to the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the attitude towards the Chinese? Um, or the kind of the, the, the attitude towards the origin of the virus? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I think it's appropriate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it's not the first time, you know, that something has originated from there. I was, I don't know what I was reading that said there is a culture uh, in uh, China of newly rich people, right? Because you know, kind of billionaires in China haven't been billionaires forever. It was only since kind of the opening up of China to business, like about 20 years ago, that people really started right. making this amount of money. And of course, one of the things that people do is they try to impress their guests with, you know, the most expensive and the most difficult to get foods. And of course, you know, kind of different animals have, you know, mm. the, the, uh, they're better for your health or they make you more sexually powerful or whatever, right? So, so it's not the first time you know, that uh, this has happened, right? I think the whole film actually was based on, I forget whether it was the SARS or... Yeah, I think yeah, SARS originated the, in China. I'm not sure about swine flu yeah. and bird flu. Didn't, didn't, wasn't, didn't swine flu come from Mexico? I can't remember. Spanish flu came from America, I think. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, in recent times, yeah, kind of, it's not the first pandemic to arise from that, and it is because of this mixture of exotic animals and food. Um, and I think the film actually kind of conveys that uh, very well at the end. So what I didn't like about it, because I think the film is moralistic, but actually 
not in the ways that I'm hearing from you. So what I hated about the film was the Gwyneth Paltrow character uh, having her have cheating on her husband yeah. in the first two minutes of the film, right? Because that already puts a moral judgment on the pandemic that is about to happen. Whereas actually, it shouldn't be. I kind of thought that. I thought it sort of said, like, she got this because she was a bad person. Yes, exactly. And it tied her being bad to kind of sexual desire. I mean, she shouldn't cheat on her husband, but it it does put a a kind of a a prudish spin on it almost. Exactly, right. So So there's the combination of her being a bad woman because, you know, she has sex outside of marriage, you know, and then actually the Chinese restaurant, right? Because again... You know, so I think the way that the virus is constructed with the bat eating the food, the pig eating, yeah, I think that's all very well. But then you get to the point where the chef wipes his hands on his apron and then shakes hands with her. Yeah, so I think that is very dodgy. Yeah, that does kind of, you particularize blame in a way Mm. that I'm a bit uncomfortable with. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that the Marion Cotillard character, her job is to trace... The, the origin of the virus and I think that's an important kind of well it's an important thing to do um, and it's an important kind of part of the film and her what she ends up she ends up in a situation where she is kind of stonewalled by the Chinese who she's sort of trying to work with and they end up kidnapping her so that their small village can get the vaccine when it arrives before anybody else um, yes. so you know so so, like, a, to a degree, you kind of think, oh, this is realistic. Like, you know, we heard about the Chinese um, at the start of this uh, current pandemic, um, you know, lying, keeping things undercover, and, of course, they weren't able to, and it's got out. And so there's kind of, there's a level of blame that's being uh, apportioned to them. Um, but then it, it, it goes so far to kind of uh, give this one particular Chinese character an individual um, uh, kind of, he acts out of selfishness and he acts out of panic and you kind of understand it but it's also essentially morally wrong and you know that um yes though i think it's meant to be representative and not just of china so to be fair to the film yeah, yeah because actually you were told one of the characters says uh, the reason why they give the placebo is because it's happening everywhere else mm. yeah so you know so that's just one instance of that happening yes um, yeah so so I kind of like that, actually. And I thought the film was marvelously structured. The, you know, I thought it was wonderful that it begins day two, yeah, and it leaves day one until the very end, yeah. right? You know, and then kind of you go day three, day five. Yeah, like, yeah, the film seems to kind of, you know, start at this wonderful, exciting pace, actually. Yeah, it does. And I, I love the way it spreads the story around its characters as well. It's a real ensemble piece, and a lot of these characters don't come together. You know, the Matt Damon character yeah. is separate from the Lawrence Fishburne character, is separate from the Marion Cotillard character. These are all living in different kind of aspects of this uh, of this panic as it develops. I think it handles that spread, if you like, um, very nicely and keeps things... It's got a real, real sense of tempo and pacing. And it understands when to drop in and drop out of any character's story, you know. And actually, one of the interesting things about a film like this, in which each of the characters is an idea, right, and only secondarily a character, mm. um, is how fantastic Matt Damon is. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, um, you know, the bit in the hospital where he can't believe his wife is dead, yeah, and he raises his voice, it's just like 
kind of thrilling. Like, you, you know, you just have a physical response to that, right? And, yeah, because he speaks much louder than everybody else, or much louder than any than he's spoken at any other time. And it gives this incredible charge, yeah? Like, mm. you know, he can't believe, he, he's not hearing what the doctors are saying because it's just so unimaginable, yeah, that somebody so young and so on could be dead, right? I thought that was, I thought he was wonderful uh, with that. There was one point with him that I really picked up on him not being as good as I would have wanted him to be. I can't remember exactly what it was. I think it might be where he's in isolation, in quarantine in the hospital, and his daughter comes, and by this point he's lost his wife and his son. And... Uh, it might be that point, I can't remember, but it, but he should have cried at one point. He should have been absolutely properly distraught. And instead, they kind of try and play it as this, as this numb shock thing. And actually what happens is when his daughter shows up, he just kind of gets into gear and he's just competent again and uh, keeps his head on. And I just think it didn't come across as believable to me at all. I wanted him to be emotionally vulnerable then, he, and he wasn't. He was just, he seemed like nothing had affected him. Didn't like that. Well, no, I disagree. I mean, I think, you know, he's got all this information coming from different areas, right? Um, so, you know, because first his wife dies, then his child dies, right? Then, you know, his daughter comes to see him but can't touch him, right? And I think you get a sense that he's processing all of this, um, you know, and that he can't really. But then at the end of the film, when he's looking through the camera, yeah, and he sees, hmm. yeah, his dead wife, you know, and he begins to break down, and then the daughter knocks, right, and so he's got to collect himself for the daughter. I thought that was fantastic, and it made sense of the whole performance. No, you see, that's the thing that I disagree with. That's the thing that I didn't feel like. I would understand it if it was a kind of, there's so much uh, kind of overload of information to him and kind of emotional experience that he just can't process it, but I don't get the sense that, I didn't get the sense that he was just kind of pushing through I got the sense that he was really on top of things and that's a it's a it's a different kind of performance that that, that would have been you know it, I just got the way he acts in those moments is business as usual as opposed to right. no, as I opposed to not being able to cope with things that's the problem that I had with that but it's a subtlety and it's that. one moment you know really but I didn't like it um, um, and I know what you mean about the ending I think the ending is very nice for that reason um, you know, it does start to make sense. No, it is. And, you know, the ending works very nicely, and it's an emotional, whatever. But, but I'm, to be fair, I don't think it's a really emotionally switched-on film. It is. It's a bit cold, and it's sort of quite dry. I think. Uh, you see, I, I mean, maybe I'm too involved with the film at the moment, mm. but I didn't feel that way. I thought it was exciting to watch. Um, I thought it was like visually kind of thrilling, actually. You know, I kind of, I love the color palette of the film. It, it reminds me of those, um, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, the, the color process of the early 70s, the Eastman color. Right. Yeah, but new prints of that Eastman color because it has that fantastic, bright, almost neon yellows that they use, right? And then kind of, you know, blue, like a kind of, you know, a dark blue or a blue filter that they use throughout the film. And then you get these splotches of, like, red as well, yeah? Mm. Like, you know, the suits, yeah? Uh, so it has this amazing look, you know, and it's really kind of carefully composed. Like, a lot of those lines go off on diagonals, right? And it is kind of also to convey feeling, right? So, so that example that I gave with the Kate Winslet character, often you see people through windows, right? So, so when there's conversations happening in another room, yeah, you see the characters through yet another room, yeah, yeah. as kind of somebody's about to, 
Yeah, so the sense of secrecy, lack of communication or miscommunication or the inability to know are really kind of conveyed through the compositions. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, and no, I think it looks extremely beautiful and, and very evocative. Um, but I, I just, I, there is a kind of emotional distance to pretty much everything, I think. And that's what I wanted out of the, out of the Matt Damon story that I didn't think I got was, was an emotional mm. component to how people are handling this. Because like I say, he's lost his, his son and wife. It should have hit him harder, I think. Um, hmm. What did you think of the Kate Winslet character? Um, well, it sounds unfair to say sort of forgettable, but like she, she, she. What did I think of her? She's good at her job. She takes it seriously, and then she can't help but get it, and she dies. I mean, it. I I kind of got the idea of it, but I didn't feel anything. Um, I didn't really feel anything when she died. I did. I thought that shot of her, you know, bagged up, yeah, with a plastic bag over her head, I thought that was so moving. Yeah. I don't know. I think, well, what I said right at the start was that the first half of this film scared the crap out of me because the first half of the film scared the crap out of me. And I think the reason that the second half didn't was because that's when it started to move into things that I didn't start to feel were recognisable in the real world. I think the first half really is. You know, the sense of panic and not knowing where this is going and the, and the growth um, really feel, uh, uh, like I say, recognisable right now. And then in the second half, it starts to move into this place where actually things are going to get resolved because they're working on this vaccine and they're making breakthroughs on that. That's where the Jude Law character starts to get more involved. And like I say, I don't, I, I see him as a real cipher and I don't think he's that realistic. So I kind of don't, um, he's a little bit... Uh, too, too fictional, if you like. That's a bad way of putting it, but I just don't recognise him enough. There's not enough subtlety in that. And so, as the film develops, it seems to just kind of move further and further away from what I would imagine is realistic, because things start to, because ultimately things get sorted out and they have a vaccine in place and it moves quite quickly. I don't think I don't think you actually get enough of a sense in that second half of the social. Um, effect of this because it is so focused on the, its characters and so many of its characters are involved in uh, you know the government or the CDC and that kind of thing and like they are right at the centre of this because they're the characters who are trying to figure out everything that's what makes it interesting you only get a very vague sense of social decay how this actually affects people in a wider sense and that's what it would that's what would have made it feel more terrifying to me in that second half. You know, you, you don't. I don't think you really get a feeling of like, oh, the world is starting to fall apart. <laughs> you know. Well, I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I mean, you know, there's only so much the film can do, but I yeah. did get that sense because, you know, those shots of the airport hangar, wherever they said the hospital, right? You know, and that beautiful moment where Kate Winslet tries to throw her blanket, you know, to the guy who's dying next to her, right? And then kind of you see that the hangar is full of people. Mm. Uh, and then there are other moments where uh, Matt Damon goes into the mall and the mall is deserted, right? And, mm. you know, the, the, uh, yeah, um, that clothes shop. And again, you know, Matt Damon going through uh, uh, these empty streets full of rubbish. Um, I, I kind of, I liked all of that. Uh, you know, the, the uh, highways, the carriageways being cut off, mm. right? And kind of, you know, people forced to stay. I mean... You know, because we don't know what's going to happen now, right? But, you know, it's very likely or possible that if this lasts another 135 days or whatever it lasts in the film, mm. 
you know, that kind of those measures will escalate in those ways. Uh, and I actually, I found it quite terrorizing. Also, you know, the, the, the lottery aspect, when they do finally yeah. discover a vaccine, the lottery aspect of it and so on, right? But that's just, that's actually turned into quite a nice moment because what happens is Lawrence Fishburne gives his away to the, to the, the mm. son of the janitor in his place. You know, so it turns into yes. this moment where he can, he can pay it forward and actually it's a very positive thing whereas you imagine, you know, there's another version of that where people are scrabbling over it. I mean, there is that scene where um, everyone's looking for forsythia, the, the homeopathic mm. non-cure, um, and yes. and then the chemist says, "We've only got fifty of these left," and everyone starts scrabbling for you know, it starts a panic. Yes. So you get a sense of that, but I think it comes back to what you were saying about the characters being there to represent types and ideas. Mm. I think that's kind of what each scene does as well, and so that's kind of why yeah. I think it it came across slightly cold to me because um, it didn't feel. There is something emotionally detached, like the film is not emotionally in touch with its own story in a sense. Um, it's it's kind of detached, and that's what I would have needed. I mean, that's such a kind of vague thing to say, like how would you do that? But it, but that's kind of what I I felt emotionally distanced from actually the world in which it was happening. Once it got to a certain point, um, I think it needed to be messier. Or I I mean I might have agreed with you had I seen this film. In 2011, you know, but kind of every moment spoke to me actually, and many were right recognizable, uh, and a lot of them it seemed very fact-based, right, and also kind of scary. So the film was working on different levels. You know, I was calling on different emotions, really, you know, partly recognizing a situation we're in, partly seeing how it could get so much worse. I mean, I think the only thing to me that the film didn't deal with. Um, which seems to be such a large part of our contemporary discussion, is the economic after effects. Mm. Yeah, the fact that yeah. you know what people are worried about is the economy. That people are worried, you know, are willing to exchange, you know, the lives of you know whole generations of people. <laughs> yeah, in order for the economy to keep working, you know, the conflict between big business and ordinary people that you know this particular kind of our version is is throwing up uh so the film doesn't deal with that yeah which is interesting i mean maybe that wasn't fully uh uh understood or imagined i mean maybe like you said there was you know such a great trust on institutions uh and government that one couldn't have foresee that those things would happen whereas of course the first thing that uh, uh, Trump did was he dismantled the Center for Disease Prevention, didn't he? The pandemic response people, yeah. Mm. I mean, it's, it, it's interesting. Um, the idea of, of trusting institutions is interesting because this was three years after the 2008 financial crash. So it's not like people were kind yes. of uh, people had been more trusting of institutions before. I mean, if you if you think like 20 or 25 years ago, there was such a trust in in uh, sort of big business that you thought, oh, get all these big business people into the government because they know how to run it. If they know how to run a business, they can run a government. Like, the world is not like that anymore. And it wasn't like that at the time either. Um, but it has changed since then. Like, we are we are now, between 2011 and now, I think, you, I think you pick up on something that's absolutely right. Like, the way in which people are responding to this economically and the way in which the way in which there is a just a much greater focus on the economics of it is really interesting. And I think it's, you know, like I said... Um, the thing about uh, people not believing it widespread, it's unfair to criticise the film too much for not putting that in because some things are just not imaginable. I don't think people mm. you really would have imagined that 
that there would be such a widespread just distrust in facts at this time, mm. you know. So it's not. Mm. So I'm not kind of. I don't want to be too harsh on the film in saying, well, it's, it's it's a mistake. You never put that in. And I think the same thing is true of the economic effects. But 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 as you say, what's happening now in the real world with the economic damage with people losing their jobs with this thing about we'll pay eighty percent of your wages now. The government's finally got around to saying if you're furloughed, you know, um, you know, people who are self-employed are losing work, that kind of thing. People are really in trouble. If they put that in the film in some way, you'd have probably thought that that is far too sci-fi at the time. Do you know what I mean? It would have been unimaginable. I mean, I certainly would never have imagined a conservative government, a, a, a very right-wing conservative government, uh, to have taken the measures that Boris Johnson uh, and the Chancellor have taken recently. I mean, that to me, I mean, it, it is... You know, a socialist as you can get, really. <laughs> yeah. And guaranteeing people's wages. <laughs> I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think that would have been kind of. I wouldn't have been able to imagine it. That's for sure. So, you know, you can hardly blame the film. So, but but let's move away from you know because I think in a way we're discussing lacks and, you know, it's always very difficult to talk about films in terms of lacks like. You know, uh, you you have to look at the film in terms of what it is, yeah, not yeah. what it coulda, shoulda, woulda. You know, um, so and I I must say I was like really uh, pleasantly surprised. I th I think it's really very good, and some of the moments are just like we are living them now. It feels like a documentary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So I mean, ultimately, I think the reason to watch this was was the current situation and to see you know sort of what the difference is between what was imagined and that kind of thing. And so that's what we've talked about. And I think there are lots of things, like I say, that really the whole first half of the film, I think it captures a real sense of unease and panic and not knowing where things are going. And there are things that are so recognisable to what we're experiencing now that, that you know, I thought, oh God, this is a horrible experience. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it was a terrible, seriously, it was all, I started watching it. I thought, oh, this will be fun. I said to you, let's watch Contagion. It'll be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd seen it already, you see. No, I hadn't. I was like, well, everyone's no. talking about it now. It's, it's number seven on iTunes, and they're showing it on Thursday, as you found out, on, on ITV. So like, everyone's interested in it again. I thought, well, it's a perfect time to watch it. A terrible idea. We should never have done this. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Well, what I wanted you to see, which is what we'll do next, is uh, Baccarat, which is uh, playing on movie. Yeah. You know, so and actually, this will be a great opportunity to see more films like that because, you know, they are on video on demand. Yeah, kind of a lot of new releases are being put on, you know, yeah. on Netflix, on Mubi, and so on. So, you know, I think in a way, it's probably like I mean, I think in terms of our podcast, it might be a good thing because it'll open up the range of films that we can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to watch more Brazilian films about. I mean, it does look actually quite interesting back around, so I'm looking forward to watching it. So we'll watch that for the next couple yes. of days, and then I'll get you to watch Hook, um, and then I'll finally have that satisfied, and then we'll see some other stuff. Yeah, yeah, we can take turns shooting. Um, so. uh, but now, let's end this. Yes, I mean... yeah. So, well, yeah, like I say, I think, I, I'm glad that I watched it. I think there are some really interesting things. Going. I think it's an amazing cast as well, we haven't said. I mean, it's one of those films where uh, you kind of get the feeling, well, Steven Soderbergh has got so many friends, and they all just want to work with him, and they'll do anything, you know, and it has that sense of a cast. Um, and I think it handles the, 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 the um, movement between its characters and the development of its story really well. It has a fantastic sense of pace, as I say. I did start to find it lacking later on, and I would have liked more sense of emotional connection to some of its characters. Um, hmm. 
but I think you know it, it is a, it's a really interesting film and a really well made one, and mm. and in and light of today, there's an awful lot to think about. Yes, I just want to add because you know I think there are a few actors that I hate more than Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, and I want to single her out and Matt Damon for both being really great in this actually. Um, I, I was really surprised. She's hardly in it. How, how wonderful. She is in it more than you think because uh, she dies right at the beginning, mm -hmm. but then the film keeps going back to her. She is the anchor of the film. It's a kind of, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's an investigation into her that resolves the problem of the film until the very end, which is why I think the, you know, the moralizing about her at the beginning is so problematic because it begins and ends with her. And you flash back to her, hmm. yeah, uh, you know, uh, uh, throughout the film, actually. So she is a central character. Yeah. Well, I disagree with you on Matt Damon. But, uh... Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think we both recommend that you see it. I think everybody will anyway. Mm, it's, having a, it's having definitely a, a second wave right now. Yeah. So if you see it and if you listen to the podcast, kind of let us know what your thoughts are. Yeah, stay, stay indoors. Stay indoors, stay safe. Yes. Don't go out, yes. just stay in and listen to the podcast. That's my advice. <laughs> That's right. Uh, all right. Thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and YouTube to listen to us uh, on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Cheerio. Bye bye. <laughs>